So, um, yeah, let's introduce ourselves to this again. Uh, as we've been talking about Revelation, and I've, as I've taught Revelation before, uh, the issues about Revelation come down to uh, which uh, hermeneutic is adopted. And by hermeneutic, I mean the, the method of interpretation. Uh, how will you interpret Revelation when you come to the text? Will you uh, interpret it the same way that you've interpreted other texts of Scripture? Or will you uh, change gears and adopt uh, some other method? And, um, um, and you're all familiar with my uh, method. It's consistent through the Scriptures. Uh, we call it the literal, historical, and grammatical uh, interpretation of Scripture. And, um, and that's the same when we come to Revelation. And so, yeah. Now, when we interpret uh, Scripture, uh, prophecy included, it's absolutely necessary that we interpret what we see, that is, what is actually in the text. Now, if you've read things on Revelation, uh, or you've watched something on YouTube, you notice that there's no shortage of, of um, creative license when it comes to the book. And my question is, who gave you license to do that? Uh, because if you have uh, authority to apply any method, uh, it better come from the Lord and not from your imagination uh, or, I would say, even your theology, uh, but one that uh, is consistent with uh, the text, what is there. Uh, and if you do not see something in the text... Uh, like our own assumptions or theological biases, I don't think that we have any business inserting anything in there. And then, and then you know, inter interpreting what we've placed in the text. Uh, biblical interpretation should always begin with discovery. Discovery, okay, not creativity. Uh, it's about fact-finding. Finding. It's about gathering data. So we're on a quest of discovery when we come to the text of Scripture, allowing the details to really unravel before us, and then we interpret what we find there. Uh, we're not, uh, as it were, in a laboratory inventing stuff. Uh, the human mind is a dirty place, and uh, we don't need men mingling their imagination uh, in with the text of God's Word, at least in an interpretive sense. Uh, creativity can come out in presentation, uh, but not in the interpretation. That's, that's for God to, uh, to give. We should be communicating, um, restating what he has said, uh, representing his mind, what he intended when he wrote. So, and I think that that is especially true when it comes to history. Um, yeah, what's in the text has to dictate things. So, um, I want to look at the text itself in Revelation to determine uh, the outline for the book itself, okay? And then um, next week, we'll look at Matthew. We'll go to a, another place and let Jesus talk about it from there, and he'll talk about um, chapters 4 through 22. Today, we'll talk about the whole thing. Before we do that, um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started, okay? All right, well, Lord, thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we had 
uh, to worship in song. Lord, I just love the, the truth behind the last song that we sang. Um, you will hold us fast. As um, Jude says, uh, you're able to keep us from falling. Uh, and that's good because if you're not able, we will fall. And so we thank you that you keep us. And Lord, I pray that you be with us tonight and uh, that you would teach us through the text and uh, that you give us good instruction. So encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, when it comes to outlines that are found in the scriptures, um, there's actually, there's at least three. And what is kind of fun about it is Jesus is the one that provides all three. Uh, so we've, we've called them divine outlines. Uh, one is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, you know, the text says, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. And he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth. And when you read the book of Acts, how does it unravel? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it's still going out to the utter ends of the world. Uh, Jesus didn't just know that with uh, his foreknowledge, his infallible foreknowledge, but that's the way that he made it happen, okay? And um, so he's the, he cheats when he gives an outline because he's in control of the outline. Um, I don't have that ability, neither, I don't have foresight, and I can't um, uh, work with things sovereignly. The other one, as we've mentioned, is Matthew 24, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse, that's for next week. Uh, today we'll be talking about Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. But what is also interesting is that Matthew 24, Revelation 1, 19, two of the three divine outlines given by Jesus have to do with the end, with the end. And uh, so I think the end is important to Jesus. Um, and then when you bring the outlines together, I think it's interesting because Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is all about the, the, the order of the propagation of the gospel uh, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which is now happening. And what follows the propagation of the gospel are the things pertaining to the end, okay? Uh, which brings us to the last two divine outlines. It's just an outline from the time that the gospel is given to the end of history. Coincidence? Sure, if you believe in that stuff. Uh, yeah, so let's begin with the outline. Uh, Jesus gave it in Revelation 1.19. This is what he said. He said, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. After this. Uh, do you see all the tenses in there? Let me give it to you this way. Write the things which you have seen, past tense, that would be Revelation 1, 1 through 18. Write the things which are, present tense, Revelation 1, 20 through chapter 3, verse 22. And then write the things which will take place after this, future tense, Revelation 4 through 22. Okay. Seems to be pretty easy. He's not interpreting the book for us uh, in that outline, which would have been very nice of him. Uh, I think that the interpretive stuff comes out in the text itself. But Jesus just tells John, uh, 
past, present, future. That's the outline of the book. And um, so, yeah, the tenses are clear. Past, present, future. Now, some people object uh, to the, the simple explanation of the verse and provide an alternative that is, is far less comprehensive if you've ever read those. And it just strays from the plain reading of the passage and, uh, and also the layout of the book. Uh, as we go through this, it, it becomes very clear that it's past, present, and things way beyond. And uh, so let's, uh, it's best to take the, the verse at face value. Uh, things go much smoother. Um, as I've said before, we're looking for the sense that makes the most sense to avoid nonsense. Okay. So we'll go with the plain rendering of the text. So John was to record what he had just witnessed, and then <clears throat> the things that were currently happening followed by the things that were yet future. So let's examine each of them. <clears throat> Write the things which you have seen. So the question is, what is it that John had just witnessed? In chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, John became a witness of the self-revelation of Christ. Okay, in verse 10, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice behind him as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he hears this voice behind him. So just like what we would do, he whirls around to see who is speaking to him. And what he initially saw were seven golden lampstands, okay? And then in the midst of the seven golden lampstands was Christ, not as John knew him on earth, not even close, um, but as he was now in heaven, risen, ascended, and glorified. Okay, very important. Um, and then the revelation of Jesus was so intense that John fell at his feet as dead. That means he lost consciousness, okay? The vision of Christ to him was both dreadful and it was awesome. And that's something that many fail to recognize in this current era, especially in the West, where the Jesus of the Bible is effeminate, he's weak and permissive, uh, someone that we can take for granted. We can take him or leave him. Um, that won't be the case on the last day. Uh, but what a rude awakening when the Father, as Hebrews says, brings the firstborn back into the world, back into the world. And so Jesus uh, puts his right hand on John and uh, revives him. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And... I have the keys of Hades and of death. So this, this declaration of himself, he comes across saying that he's the eternal one. He's the very I am of the Old Testament. Okay? He is life itself and the one who has authority over uh, death and the grave. The, the concept of keys comes out of the Jewish Talmud. So when the Jews spoke of the keys... In uh, first century Israel, they understood the idea of authority. 
Jesus is saying, I have authority uh, over death and the grave, Hades and death. So John was to write down what he had just seen, write down the things that you've seen, this self-revelation of Jesus, the magnified, the glorified Christ. And then write the things which are, the things which are uh, currently, the things that are current, what's currently going on. And in the flow of the text, it's uh, what's going on in chapter 2 and 3. Jesus describes to John the moral and the spiritual condition of the seven churches of Asia, things they're facing, uh, their response to those things. And within them, there's commendation and there's rebuke. At least all of them but one get a rebuke. And John's to record this information and then have it sent to these churches. Okay? Uh, and then as an interpretive key, we look back uh, to chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus reveals that the seven lamps represent the seven churches of Asia. Okay? And then he says the seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. So the question is, what are these uh, seven angels? Who are they? Now, the Greek word for angel, uh, agalos, it simply means messenger. Uh, It normally refers to angelic beings, but not always. So it's strange that John would write a letter to an angel. What do you guys think? Now, angels have mediated covenants before. So from God to an angel to man. But we don't ever see from God to man to angel to man. That's a little strange. Okay, Uh, But men are called angels. Uh, John the Baptist was called the Lord's Agalos, his angel, in Matthew eleven, ten. Except, of course, it's not translated angel, it's translated as messenger. But it's the same Greek word. Some of John's disciples were called Agalos, Luke 7, 24. Uh, some of Jesus' disciples were called Agalos, Luke 9, 52. And then James, when he was talking about the spies that came into Israel... Uh, They are called Agalos, James 2.25. So, yeah, um, that they would be, these seven stars, these angels, that they would be human isn't uncalled for, um, especially since in written form it was to be passed to them and then given to the churches. So, yeah, I don't think... Now, he's going to use the word agalos many times throughout the book of Revelation. And from chapter 4 to the end, it always refers to angelic hosts. Some say, well, that negates the possibility of the, the angels in uh, chapters uh, 1 through 4 being, or, or 3 being humans. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be that rigid on it. Uh, I think that some good reason applied to it would help you. Either place them as couriers, uh, letter carriers, or even perhaps the pastors of the churches. Okay. That's my take on it. I doubt that he wrote these letters, gave them to angels, who then gave them to the church. It just seems very strange to me. But anyway, 
If you think they're angels, um, that's fine. I don't, it's, it's not a life or death issue for me. So, yeah. That's the things which are, chapter 2 through chapter 3. And then the things which will take place after this, after what is current, uh, after the details of the seven churches are recorded, uh, write down the things which will take place yet in the future. Now, according to the outline uh, of 119, uh, this third part of the outline began with the things which will take place after these things, after these things. After John finished recording the details of the churches in chapter 3, chapter 4 begins with after these things, after these things, Uh, just as Jesus said, which brings us to the final and, of course, the largest section of the book of Revelation, chapter 4, all the way to 22, okay, things yet future. All right, so let's go over them. Uh, I'm going to hang out primarily in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and, uh, and then we'll rush through the rest of the book. Now, if you get caught up in numerology, if you get caught up in symbols, if you get caught up in what represents this and what represents that and all those details, um, you will miss, really, what the book of Revelation is all about. And, uh, and as I've read enough work on the Revelation, you are not going to find any numerological chart that is consistent. Okay? Sorry. I've read them from the first century to this century. And uh, nobody's numerology is consistent. Okay? The point is to discover something or many things about Jesus. And we'll return to that at the end. And if that's what you're looking for, um, and it's right there in the outline as well. Okay, we'll come back to it. Yeah, fun stuff. So in chapter 4 and 5, John is translated uh, into the throne room of heaven where he becomes an observer. He's almost like a fly on the wall. And uh, he's in the throne room of heaven, and things at this point begin to look more like the book of Daniel, okay, the book of Zechariah and Ezekiel, rather than a New Testament document. Now, the Old Testament has a lot of stuff like that. This is the only thing in the New Testament that comes across this way, okay? And it looks like some of those Old Testament books for good reason. The contents of Revelation chapter 4 to 22 uh, are giving an overview of some of the prophecies from those books, and then they ex- and John then expands on them further, which shouldn't surprise us because uh, more revelation comes more revelation, as it were. Also, in the book of Revelation, there are some 200 references and allusions to the Old Testament. That is more than any other New Testament book referring to the Old Testament. Okay, and so. Uh, a thorough investigation of those passages in the Old Testament, 200 of them at least, um, I think is important to understanding the book of Revelation. So John finds himself observing, he's watching, at least for now he's watching, he becomes a participant later, 
But he's observing this wild and majestic scene in heaven where God is seated on his throne with a scroll in his right hand. And the scroll becomes uh, front and center. And then around the throne and in the chamber there are these four living creatures. There's 24 elders and then a multitude of angelic hosts. Uh, Now, who these four living creatures are and 24 elders, you can get caught up in that too and uh, and miss what uh, Jesus wanted John to observe and to see. And I've got my own theories about who they are or what they represent and all that, but it's not that important to me. Uh, The attention is focused in, not, not even so much of the one who sits on the throne, Uh, But what he's holding, what he's holding, this scroll with seven seals, that is wax seals on it. And in Revelation 5, 2, an angel comes forth and he asks those in attendance, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy But no one among them, at least among those that are created, are worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And of course, to read or disclose its contents. It says that John begins to weep over this whole issue. Now, of course, that requires some interpretation. I have my own view. I have my own view. Because I believe that the breaking of the first seal initiates the end. Okay, the unraveling of the events that follow. And that's, that's not interpretive. It, it happens. He breaks a seal and things start happening. But without the breaking of that first seal, the world would continue on as it is. That's what would happen. Because nothing of the events of Revelation 6 to the end can even begin until Jesus initiates them. He is the sovereign Lord over the end. Okay? So I think John weeps because nobody can put an end to this. Rebellion, sin, and suffering will just continue perpetually. And so he weeps. But in verse 5, one of the 24 elders comes to John and said, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose It's seven seals. So he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks, he sees a lamb who had been slain. Now, the tense is clear there, too. The the lamb had been slain, but he's alive. He's alive. That's right. And the lamb is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. It's referenced from Genesis 49 the patriarchal blessing of Jacob to the tribe of Judah, which is filled with messianic implications. And the other references uh, come from Isaiah, both from Isaiah 11, um, that refer to Christ as the Messiah. And so the lamb, he comes forward and he takes the scroll, and then the four living creatures with the 24 elders begin to worship Jesus And I want you to notice what their great expectation is as soon as Jesus takes hold of that thing, okay? Or he's presented as the one that's worthy. Verse 9 and 10, 
and they sang a new song. I love this because they, they're not singing this song yet, as we'll talk about in a minute. They can't sing it yet. But it's new, and it comes out of response to this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So those who will be in heaven at that time that have been redeemed from every tribe, every language, people group, and nation will be looking forward to reigning on the earth. The new song, okay? At that time, when Jesus takes the scroll, it will fill heaven with the anticipation of an earthly reign with him. The declaration is clear, and we will reign on the earth. Okay, notice also the time stamp in the verse. Those making the declaration are the ones that have been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, that's language, nation, and people group. In heaven, are there currently people from every tribe, language, nation, and people group? It's pretty doubtful. It's pretty doubtful. Uh, they certainly were not there at the time of John. The gospel was still in its infantile stages of being preached. Um, it had reached uh, all of Europe, We potentially. Uh, some believe it reached India, but it certainly didn't reach every language in India or the Southeast Asia, China, Russia, uh, Scandinavia, America, South America. There were certainly people groups there. There was languages represented. But to claim that every tribe, every language, nation, and people. You see, the timestamp is clear. Jesus will not take the scroll and break its seals until those representatives are there. That's important. Okay? The song cannot be sung until then. Okay? And it's always fascinating to me that those who deny the literal reign of Christ on the earth say that the disciples of Jesus were mistaken about the earthly messianic kingdom. If that's true, the redeemed in heaven are under the same delusion and their anticipation is nothing but a false hope. I hope that's not true about the people that are in heaven, okay? The declaration is clear. He has made us kings and priests to our God, and we will reign where? On earth. This is picked up later again uh, at the end. In Revelation 26, their, their anticipation becomes a reality. You know, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. We already know where they reign. Their anticipation is to reign on the earth. 
And here it just tells us for how long. Okay. So the contents of this prophecy of four, chapter 4 through 22 are future. Are future. Yeah. That um, brings, it contends with the idea of what's called preterism, that the book of Revelation is all things past and fulfilled in 70 AD. Uh, there definitely was not representation in heaven uh, at that time of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, but also the historical view that the book of Revelation has been being fulfilled as history unravels uh, because that messes up the chronology here. And uh, so if the chronology in the text sets the agenda, uh, we have to push this further into the future. Um, let's move on to some of the contents, the weird stuff that everybody gets so worked up over. Chapters, uh, chapters 6 and 7, uh, Jesus breaks the seals, okay? Which initially unleashes what has been called the four horses of the apocalypse. Um, the four horses of the apocalypse. The first seal brings a conquering king on the first horse. The second one brings war. The third brings famine. And the fourth brings death. Death. The fifth seal reveals the martyr's cry. John sees the souls under the altar in heaven who were martyred for the faith. And they are crying out to God to avenge them. So it's the martyr's cry. Uh, that altar must be very large. Um, when we look over history from the, the first century into this century, it's estimated that about 100,000 Christians per year are martyred for the faith. That is still current, by the way. I just read that. Um, Voice of the Martyrs puts that out and a few other groups. Uh, it averages out as 100,000 a year. And we complain that Biden is president. We need a, a little perspective little perspective. The martyrs cry. The sixth seal brings the wrath of the lamb and the sealing of the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe. Every tribe. So I have a view about the seals. Uh, I'm not completely settled on it. I'll just kind of put it out there to you. Uh, but I, at this point in my study of Revelation, I think the seals being on the outside of the scroll, sealing its contents, if you will, I see them sort of as an index, that they represent the overall uh, book of the, the overall content of the judgments, and that under each one of them, they're expanded by the, the trumpets and the bowls. Uh, some people see the, all of it completely linear, lin linear whatever that word is. My tongue doesn't function well like that. So you have um, the seal judgments, then you have the trumpet judgments, and you have the bowl judgments. I kind of see the seals as the umbrella outline for all of those. OK? 
Okay? And then the, uh, just kind of given an overview of the judgments. And then the specifics are found uh, within the trumpets and the bowls. There's other people that hold that view. Uh, again, it's not life or death for me. Um, many views out there. So let's move on. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14. This is the, uh, where the seventh seal introduces the seven trumpets. And now things get very detailed. Okay, uh, The first trumpet, we have hail and fire. It burns up a third of the earth's trees and green grass. Imagine a world where that begins to unravel. Okay, uh, And one thing that is always intriguing to me is that the angel that says are holding back the wind. So when you have dead things everywhere and no wind, you've got a disgusting problem. Okay, The second one is uh, a meteorite that contaminates the sea. Now, uh, you know, there's differences on, is this all the seas? Is this all the bodies of water or whatever? The, the definite article is there, the sea. But the question is then, what sea is he referring to? Is it the Mediterranean Sea? It's definitely not the Dead Sea because nobody cares. It's already contaminated. Um, you know, which body of water is he specifically talking about? Um, I'm not ready to say, and neither do I seriously care. Uh, everybody's going to know when it happens. Okay? Uh, it kills a third of the sea creatures, which will wash up on the beach, uh, and destroy a third of the ships on the sea. Another meteorite called Wormwood, of course, every time we have a, a meteorite that come, a meteor that comes close to the earth, somebody names it Wormwood, it strikes a third of the rivers and springs, contaminating the water so that it becomes Wormwood, undrinkable, no longer potable. Uh, then a third of the next one, the fourth, and a third of the light from heaven's luminaries will fail to shine, okay? Um, five, the locusts from the bottomless pit are released to torment unbelieving humanity for five months. Uh, if you want nightmares, read about those guys. The four angels and their armies are released in the sixth trumpet from their prison at the Euphrates River. They kill a third of humanity. And then within that, the two witnesses appear between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. At the seventh trumpet is a long and detailed interval okay, that ex it explains... Uh, history, okay, and some of the details that have led up to this point, uh, the, the, the casting out of Satan, the rise of the two beasts, okay, the, the, the beast and the false prophet, as they're called later, the persecution of the saints of the time, and then we have the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God, which is an unsightly picture there. Chapter 15, uh, seven angels are given the seven bowls of God's wrath to pour out on the earth, chapter 16 through 18. Uh, the first one, sores, uh, come on those who have the mark of the beast, all right? Um, all life in the sea, it's apparently the same body of water, it perishes. Rivers and springs become like the blood of a dead man. Does that mean it's coagulated? I don't know. You don't want to drink it, though. Uh, men are burned by the heat of the sun. The beast's kingdom is filled with darkness that causes extreme pain. 
It's like the darkness in Egypt, but on steroids. Okay? The water in the Euphrates River dries up to give passage to the kings of the east to gather, as the text says, in the valley of Armageddon. All right? And then there's this, we begin to have these interesting kind of one-liners come into the text from unknown uh, origin, and then Jesus will start inserting things. And if you have a Bible that has the, the words of Jesus in red, it's easier to identify those. But a voice comes out and says, it is done. And then there's this, the worst earthquake the earth uh, has ever endured. There will be a great hailstone with hailstones weighing uh, about 100 pounds. Uh, that can prove to be bad. Weight doubles every four feet. So I don't know what that will weigh once it, uh, from wherever it falls or what it's, uh, you know, when it reaches terminal velocity. Um, Hailstones are pretty amazing what they can do. In the seventh bowl judgment, the harlot of Babylon, the woman who rides the beast, she's revealed along with her fall and then the fall of Babylon. So as the judgments get heavier and heavier and heavier, you see Satan's domain diminish, diminish, diminish. And then chapter 19 um, yeah, the saints in heaven begin to celebrate uh, the destruction of Babylon. Now, when you go through the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to the end, you notice that the saints in heaven, the angels in heaven, every time they worship God, they worship him for his justice and his wrath. It's not a common theme in our worship music, uh, but it is in every worship presentation in chapter 4 through 22. God is to be worshiped. Uh, for his just uh, indignation against what is wicked. The angels knew that. Um, there's this anticipation for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, as Jesus returns to the earth uh, to make war with his enemies, uh, it says that his vesture is dipped in blood. That's Isaiah 63. Uh, one of the, uh, probably the darkest, one of the darkest uh, prophecies about the Lord's coming. Uh, Isaiah is standing in Jerusalem. He's looking south toward Edom to Basra. And he says, who is this who is coming from Basra with his vesture drenched with blood? And then the Lord responds to Isaiah. And he says, it is I. He says, I alone have vanquished my enemy and drenched my clothing with his blood. And um, it's very interesting, but it's a perfect correlation um, between this passage here and Isaiah 63. And then uh, in chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. This is very interesting. Everyone else gets to at least face judgment before they're thrown in the lake of fire. The Antichrist and the false prophet... Nope. It's, there's no uh, collect $200 or whatever. Uh, it's just go straight to jail. Uh, the eternal abode. <laughs> Chapter 20. Uh, after the enemy is defeated, uh, Satan is bound in the bottomless pit 
for a thousand years, and the people of Christ reign with him for that thousand years on the earth. And then after the thousand years are complete, Satan is released, it says, to deceive the nations one last time, and then he is defeated, and he is forever cast into the lake of fire. Uh, Why uh, God has allowed him to do that, plenty of speculation there. And then after that, the final judgment is held. And those who uh, seem to stand at the judgment described uh, experience, they endure what is called the second death. So there's physical death when your consciousness, consciousness is separated from your body, the body goes in the grave. And, um, but then they're raised at that day to stand before God. And if their name is not found in the book of life, their body, their spirit is cast into the lake of fire uh, forever and ever. And uh, not a pretty, pretty picture. Chapter 21 through 22, verse 5, we have the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. It's revealed there. And uh, the new Jerusalem gets a lot of detail. So what we see in that text is that heaven and earth merge, and then they are the new heaven and the new earth together. And there is the new Jerusalem, and there's no temple because God is housed there. He is the temple. And um, it would be very interesting, the eternal state. And then chapter 21, 6 through 21, um, some final exhortations some warnings about adding on to or taking away, and uh, this great anticipation of the Lord, and then the revelation is closed. So, conclusion. When we look back at the original outline, we get a sense of what Jesus wants us to pay attention to. Okay? He's seen in the outline revealing himself as the Lord of glory as the Lord of glory, as the Lord of the church, two through three, and then as Lord over history, chapter four through 22. The, the, The book, the outline demonstrates, it shows that Jesus is sovereign, that he's sovereign, okay? The events of chapter four through 22 demonstrate that nothing begins without Jesus's initiation, and it ends with his finishing all things, okay? He's the one that breaks the seals. I just think that's amazing that everything is on the edge of its seat waiting for Jesus to do something, to let this all unravel to what he intends. He grants Satan permission the ability and the parameters to the troubles that he will cause. He cannot go beyond them. He won't start beforehand, and he will be finished when Jesus says he's done. Yeah. Many people think that the cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan is like somewhat uh, equal, and it's going to be a toss-up. No, Jesus holds Satan's existence in his hands, just like he does ours. Okay, there's no competition. Okay. Of course, in the end, Jesus crushes Satan as rebellion, just as God promised, 
clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, a promise that he's been holding on to a very long time. And, um, and he appointed the day of its fulfillment. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't just history, it's his story. And it reveals an orchestrated and intended end. An intended end. And the details in between are not a gamble. They're, they're not a toss-up. They're all controlled. They're brought to a planned conclusion, including your life and mine. And Jesus, as the text demonstrates, he'll bring his people safely to himself, and we will reign with him just before we spend eternity with him in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the city of our God. Uh, that's the city of our residence. Amen? This isn't our home. We're citizens of another place. So, all right. Well, next week, we'll look at Matthew 24 as a complementary outline for Revelation. And uh, I really like Jesus' perspective on the end. And uh, he has certainly helped me understand Revelation from Matthew 24. And then he also tells us to look back to the book of Daniel. Uh, he references Daniel. He says, he who reads, let him understand. And so I've spent much time in Daniel wrestling with it. And then after we're done with that, then we'll do kind of a survey of uh, eschatology. So, all right, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Raj. What? Oh, yeah. So we won't be doing it next week. Yeah, we'll be giving thanks. So. All right. Well, Lord, I, I thank you that you haven't left us to guess about uh, who wins and who's in control and where we'll end up. Um, and Lord, that not just the end is determined, but everything in between. We don't serve a God who is trying to figure things out as he goes. Uh, neither are you the God who has uh, plan A, B, C, and D if one of the other ones doesn't work. It's all planned. Nothing is going to fall out of line. And, um, and Lord, that's comforting. As Mike talk, talked about anxiety Sunday, Lord, getting a grip on your sovereignty and your goodness, Lord, is, is, a, is a good route to living without too much anxiety. And so, Lord, help us to grasp at least those details uh, from the book of Revelation. You're in control, and you will bring us safely to yourself, Lord, and we will spend eternity with you. So, Lord, we thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.